in the world. The United Nations has faced criticism for decades over its effectiveness, especially its means to resolve conflicts and ease the suffering of the most vulnerable. Many argue that veto powers held by its Security Council permanent members, China, France, Russia, the UK and the US, create an uneven balance of power. Delegates from 46 of the poorest nations have come together in Doha for the fifth conference of the United Nations least developed countries. But does the UN need to be reformed first, as critics say, if it's to make progress? Saba Karosi, the United Nations General Assembly President, talks to Al Jazeera. Saba Karosi, thank you very much for talking to Al Jazeera. Um, if I could begin uh, talking about action. Uh, because in the past you've said that the UN has uh, many treaties, agreements, goals and targets, but when it comes to implementing those, uh, it's slightly weaker. How do you go about uh, making sure that all of those plans and targets that the UN comes up with actually uh, turn into you know, action at the other end? Uh, Tom, thank you much for, for having me. Uh, uh, indeed, we are very good in setting goals. We are good in uh, setting agreements, but we are much less good on delivering on goals and agreements. And that's, that's a huge issue, because we are in the middle of the crisis, and that crisis is to become even worse as climate change progresses. So uh, if we don't deliver, uh, then we are going to see very, very difficult times ahead. Obviously, is a huge issue. So, so what are you trying to do to, to deal to that issue? First and foremost, uh, to put the implementation and decision-making on a more scientific basis. It's missing. We are missing it from the UN. Uh, I would like to invite science and scientific actors to assist us on addressing where we are, how we are moving ahead, what are our caveats and what can be done? That all sounds fantastic, but what actionable things are you doing, you know, within the UN to actually make some of these grand plans come to life, if you will? Tom, I have to ask you back, what do you mean exactly? Because the UN and the General Assembly is engaged in 181 items in just in this year. Uh, so are we talking about sustainable development, human rights, international policy, security, well, if we can talk uh, about the, the, the one issue that is, I guess, front and centre at the moment, and that is the war in Ukraine. And there's been some criticism that uh, the UN, uh, even before the war started, hadn't done enough to try and prevent it. And then in the, in the one year since, that uh, it hasn't pushed hard enough uh, back against Russia. So I guess what I'm asking is, what are your thoughts on, on those critics? Uh, the war has put the UN into test. Uh, you may know that the, the real body in the United Nations that is supposed to look after peace and security and be a guardian of the international peace is the Security Council. Now we have a case uh, where a permanent member of the Security Council has attacked its neighbor and at the same time it's paralyzed by its veto power, the whole Security Council. Uh, the war has been going on for more than a year and the Security Council has not been able to take a single decision on the, on the war, war, in, war in Ukraine. 
therefore all the political issues that um, are linked in any way to the conflict came to the General Assembly. So the General Assembly took already six decisions against aggression, against uh, annexation of territory, against uh, uh, infringement of human rights, uh, against uh, destruction, uh, setting up a future uh, claim registry, and also asking for a kind of international tribunal uh, for aggression. Can we talk about the Security Council for sure. a little bit? And I mean, obviously, there's, like you mentioned, you know, when one of its members uh, tries, well, does invade a, another country, that throws up a whole bunch of issues. Do you think that there needs to be reform to the Security Council first and foremost? Of course, I think. But the member states also think. Uh, for uh, the big problem for at least 20 years, uh, the th first ideas of reforming the Security Council emerged almost 40 years ago. The serious discussions of the necessity of, of reforming the Security Council came 20 years ago. And 13 years ago, we created the so-called intergovernmental negotiations. It means a very, very concrete way of exchanging ideas of how to reform the Security Council. But if you would ask me how far those negotiations went, almost zero. Mm. Uh, first and foremost, because there are different groups of member states who have different ideas, uh, different interests and different objectives, and they neutralize each other. Uh, and it is now probably the time when this process will be speeded up. Uh, last September, uh, during the high-level week, 72 or 74 heads of state and government uh, asked and demanded very, very directly the expeditious and tangible reform of the Secret Council, because the Council, as it is today, it does not correspond to the reality of the 21st century. The second, it does not cater for the international peace, uh, peace and security. So what needs to happen and what can happen in the current political climate? Uh, with the Security Council? Yes, yeah. Uh, if we are optimistic, then let's suppose uh, the Member States will come to the point of making compromises. And in a couple of months' time, maybe one year time, they will come up with a plan. Uh, how are we going to change the composition of the Security Council? Whether or not we are going to change the number uh, of the permanent members in the Security Council? How are we going to change the working methods of the Security Council? And maybe the relationship between the Security Council and the General Assembly. These are all on the table now. But uh, I have to reconfirm to you, it's a member state doing process. Of course. Would you like to see more permanent members added to the Security Council? There are many, many ideas. Uh, many... Uh, but do you think that would be a good idea? Uh, I think the five members who are now permanent members of the Security Council, this is a notion coming from the end of the Second World War. It reflects the balance of power of 1945 and now we are 77 years after. Uh, they are very new powerful countries, new continents, politically new continents, uh, new responsibilities and quite frankly uh, and it's very my very personal notion it's not the notion of this of the of general assembly after the second world war you had to win a war to become a permanent member of the security council I hope after 77 years uh, you are awarded 
a membership not by winning a war, but winning a peace. What about the, the number of vetoes that a member state uh, might be able to get? Would you like to see changes to that? You know, limiting uh, the number of vetoes for permanent uh, members? I would, uh, definitely. Though it is one of the most sensitive issue, uh, issues for the, for the members, permanent members of the Security Council. It is the essence of their power uh, in the Security Council. But actually, indirectly, we started changing it. Uh, a year ago, the General Assembly adopted a resolution that uh, obliges uh, the President of the General Assembly, in case if a veto cast in the Security Council, the same issue should come over for a discussion in the General Assembly, and there should be an explanation why the veto was cast and how uh, this issue could be addressed. Uh, but it is still a relatively new tool. Member states haven't decided yet what to use and how to use it for. I hope in the forthcoming couple of months it will crystallize uh, how we can encourage through this method uh, the members of the Security Council to work harder. Because when the veto power was in invented in 1945, the veto power was meant uh, to press the members of the Security Council to work more and work harder work harder for a compromise. Now it became a tool to block issues uh, that we somehow need to change. We need to pressurize a little bit uh, the members of the Security Council and actually this so-called veto resolution in the General Assembly does have a certain, certain moment of pressure. You can notice uh, that the number of vetoes started dec decreasing. It all sounds fantastic, you know, the, the members working harder together to, to come up with resolutions, but I mean they're probably more divided than they have been in a generation when you look at, you know, Russia and the US and, and China in the mix there as well. So are we further away from getting consensus on any changes to the Security Council than we've been in a long time? It depends on what issue. On the Ukrainian issue, as we discussed at the beginning of our, uh, our, our conversation, for more than one year, there has been no decision, no resolution at all on any Ukrainian-related issues. So when there is a, a hardcore interest of any of the P5, you can expect a veto, most probably from these three countries, Russia, US or China. And that is what uh, was happening, but I hope less and less. Just staying on, on the war in Ukraine uh, for the moment, does it feel like that has infected every single other issue that the UN has to deal with over the last 12 months and made your job and, and I guess a lot of other member states' jobs that much more difficult because of uh, the tiptoeing around that to try and make other things happen and progress? It has affected a lot of issues and it has affected the whole climate in the General Assembly. Uh, when I took the office, uh, my pledge was and my dream was, and it is still, uh, that I need to, uh, to do something with the deep distrust among member states. Now I would say that on a number of issues we have created some common ground, but on the Ukrainian issue the distrust is deeper than, than it was half a year ago. Do you hold out any hope of a ceasefire anytime soon? And what do you think it would take to get to just to that point? I think it would be very good uh, to have a ceasefire. 
I think it would be ha uh, very, very desirable to have a kind of peace plan, a, a, an implementable uh, peace plan. And I even was on the point of coming up with a notion of let's create a ceasefire before Christmas. But minutes before I would come up with, with that notion, both capitals uh, let me understand that it is not the time for them, from their perspective to talk about ceasefire. What was their reasoning? Ask them. So, you, I mean, do you hold out any hope that you'll be able to get a ceasefire before now in the end of, of your term as president? I'm not entirely sure that it will be in my, uh, my term, during my term, uh, but most of the wars end. Uh, most of the wars lead to some kind of peace arrangement. Most of the peace arrangements include ceasefire. So I'm absolutely sure that the time will come when parties will have to sit down, when they believe that they can gain at the negotiating table more than on the battlefield. When it would happen, I'm not entirely sure. For the time being, uh, the military logic is still prevailing. Both sides believe that they can win the war. Uh, as long as they, the, that, that, that belief is pre prevailing, it's very, very difficult to advance a diplomatic solution of the conflict. We've recently seen China become more vocal in trying to get involved in, in negotiating some sort of deal between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Is that something that you welcome China's, I guess, greater involvement? Uh, well, I welcome all avenues uh, which brings closer a peace based on the UN Charter and based on international law. And in a way I can understand the Ukrainians uh, who say that yes we would like to peace but we would like to protect our country. Uh, so everything uh, that is firmly based uh, on the principle of national sovereignty, uh, the integrity of the territories, uh, the non-aggression uh, uh, politics, everything that is based on that and that can be negotiated I think would be good for the whole world. And this war is affecting not only these two countries, this war affecting basically the whole world in this way or the other. I mean, almost at the same time that uh, China offered uh, to try and broker a, a deal, uh, it also came out that uh, the US, I believe, um, accused China of potentially planning to sell weapons to Russia. How, I guess, detrimental to the world order and, 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 uh, and, the, and the peace and, and, I guess, the fragile nature of where everything is at at the moment. I mean, how destructive would it be if that was to come to fruition? I think now everybody has to be very, very sober <clears throat> because we are very close uh, to a major conflict. The military actions for the time being are only between two countries. Many other countries are involved already indirectly through sanctions, uh, through financial means, uh, supplies, uh, other camp buildings. And now we are in a very, very uh, dangerous situation to think about what would be, the, would be the, the next step. And the expansion of the conflict would be detrimental. Like you mentioned, you know, it's having a, it's not just Ukraine and Russia that are, that are being impacted, it's obviously having an impact right around the world. And we recently saw that the World Food Programme had to slash uh, its funding for uh, Rohingya Muslims because of 
basically a financial shortfall. I mean, how detrimental is that and how much of an impact financially is the war having on the rest of the world, especially where we are today talking about, um, you know, the issues uh, with the least developed countries and, and the, the, the things that they are having to face and, and the UN's ability to be able to deal with them. You're absolutely right. This conflict in, uh, impacted the world in many, many ways. First and foremost, uh, you have to understand that Russia and Ukraine were and are major grain suppliers in the world. About one-third of the world export of grains are coming from these two countries. When the conflict blocked uh, the supply chains at the beginning of the, of the war, it sent up the prices uh, on the international markets for grain and other foodstuff, sometimes to two, threefold. It means that countries uh, who used to import uh, their basic supplies from Ukraine and Russia found themselves, and these are usually the most vulnerable countries, found themselves in a very absolutely impossible situation with a very, very fragile financial situation, a very difficult uh, supplies, uh, getting supplies from from the cheapest sources possible, uh, their supplies were cut. They were not in the position to pay six, four, six or seven times more for the same grain. Uh, that's why I'm, I was very happy when the Secretary General uh, could broker uh, the so-called Black Sea Grain Initiative because it secured the supplies coming out from Ukraine and Russia and it pushed down the, the prices. But it's not just the, the price of grain, though, is it? I mean, all the other countries, the, the Western nations and NATO allies that have all put in billions and billions of dollars into Ukraine, they're all now facing cost of living crisis and a, potentially a looming recession. So it's not like they have the extra cash in their back pocket to, no, no. to, to help you know, a number of these least the, developed the impact, countries. So the impact is multiple. Exactly. So where, where do you find the money to, to help the, the people that are, that are doing it the worst, um, you know, right around the world, whether it be in Africa or Haiti or, or you know, the Bangladesh? The impact goes through, through the energy markets yeah. because it's sent up gas and oil prices, mostly in Europe, but, but actually the shock waves of the price hiking went across the world, mm. uh, and the, the impact was also through the refugees. Almost 10 million Ukrainians had to flee their countries. Mm. Again, most of them went to Europe, and of course, all these bills had to be footed uh, in, in Europe and North America. I guess that leads us to the issue of climate change as well, because it feels like it's been bubbling away in the background, and it hasn't got the prominence that it probably deserves because of the war in Ukraine and the cost of living crisis and the looming recession, which are much more immediate um, for people, you know, living on a day-to-day -day basis. So how do you keep the climate change issue front and centre? It should be taken very seriously. And uh, let's be quite frank. We are on a trajectory of crossing 2.6, 2.8 Celsius by the end of this century. Uh, I'm afraid it will be almost certain that we are crossing 1.5 in a couple of years' time. Uh, I'm afraid we are crossing 2 Celsius in 10, 15 years' time, and that is absolutely the danger zone, and that's where we are now heading. Even if we would stop emissions today, which is impossible, the rising of temperature would continue at least for 30 years more. It means uh, that the dangers 
be it uh, droughts, be it floods, be it sea level, sea level rise, um, be it disease, diseases, or all, all together these factors uh, resulting in mass migration, we are going to deal with them for decades to come. And by the way, this the sea level rise will continue for about 200, 200, uh, 200 300 years more. I mean, this is obviously, you know, an existential crisis potentially for, for humans. But does it really feel like anyone is taking it seriously enough or, or enough countries are taking it seriously enough, especially some of the larger polluters? And I guess then the follow-up question before you answer that one is to uh, ask, how do you make them take it more seriously? Again, we have an agreement. We have goals. Um, but the implementation is not really going well. Uh, we should be now on a uh, declining phase of the, of, of the, of the emissions. Uh, despite that, we are still increasing the emissions of greenhouse gases. Even last year, witnessed a 0.9% uh, increase of emission. It means the highest emission in the course of the human history. It means that we are programming the exponential speed up of the climate change. Uh, can we accept it? No, because the consequences will be tremendous. Not only for the small island states, for them it's absolutely vital, but each and every country is, is going to be affected already by, by climate change. I imagine that you have worked your entire career to, to become president and, and has it been frustrating now that you've been there and, and, and trying to get so many things accomplished and achieved? Have, have you found that just the political ramifications of the world as we know it in 2022 and 2023 that that has thrown up uh, more complications uh, than, you, than you might have envisaged when you were you know, looking forward to taking on this role? If you have a dream that you are going to solve the problems of the world within one year, then you will be frustrated. But if you have a dream uh, to create systems or help creating systems that might lead us sooner or later to solutions, then you may, have, may be in a better position. You may feel that, yes, we are doing something. Is the UN fit for purpose as the UN stands now in 2023? Or, or like many critics say, it's just obsolete and doesn't get anywhere near enough done um, for the amount of money that is poured into it? Uh, the UN needs to be reformed. It uh, needs to be reformed institutionally, like we discussed already the Security Council, mm. but I can say almost the same about the, uh, the General Assembly. The UN needs to be reformed uh, in terms of scientific backup, how we take decisions and how we valu validate our decisions. And uh, the UN needs to be uh, reformed in terms of being more apt to the digital revolution. Uh, no organization can survive 77 years without major transformation. And we are in the process of a major transformation. But uh, my message to uh, those who say that the UN is worthless and the US should be disbanded. If UN wouldn't exist today, we would need to invent a UN because we need it. There are many, many issues what you cannot solve on a national basis. Uh, all major questions uh, related to the global common goods, uh, climate, oceans, waters, biodiversity, soils and many, many others, 
can only be managed jointly by the whole humanity. We are using those services of the nature jointly. We all contributed to upsetting those services and we can only jointly fix them. This multilateral approach requires multilateral platforms. We unfortunately don't have those global governance systems for most of the uh, of the global, global common goods. That's my dream. We have to create it. Just finally, if there's one thing that you want to achieve between now and the end of your term, what would it be? Introduce a solid system of scientific validation of our decision shaping and implementation in the United Nations. And do you think that you'll be able to do that between now and, and I'm working on it very hard. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, uh, Saba Karosi, for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you much, Tom. It has been a pleasure meeting you.